This is Pipelines and Turbines, the podcast that explores the hidden side of North America's energy with Jason Switzer, Lior Rothschild, and Dan Zilnick. Hi there, I'm Jason Switzer. I'm the director of Carbon Tech at, at Carbon Management Canada and co-host of Pipelines and Turbines. And here we are with another very exciting episode. We got a fantastic guest, a partner in crime over many years, who's our man in Europe now. But first, let me welcome my co-host. Hey, this is Dan Zilnick. I'm so, so excited about Carbon Next and really glad to have Jeremy here. This is going to be a wonderful discussion. And welcome, Jeremy. Jeremy Moorhouse, our man in the field. Why don't you introduce yourself, Jeremy, and just tell us a little bit about your journey that led you to the International Energy Agency in Paris. Sure. So working now, International Energy Agency as a bioenergy analyst in the Renewable Energy Division. And I started uh, just over a year ago, left Canada in the middle of the pandemic to go <laughs> take up a new job in Paris. I mean, the journey to there winds away, starting with engineering and then into working at the Pemin Institute for a while, where I met Jay and Dan, actually, and then back to school for a master's in resource and environmental management, and then several years working for Clean Energy Canada, where I did a lot of work on transportation and finished off with a couple of years working on the clean fuel standard, which is, I think, what ended up leading into this bioenergy role with the International Energy Agency. Well, that's terrific. And what a wonderful experience to be in Paris, which is at the heart of so much interesting culture and such wonderful food, of course, but also the crossroads of Europe and a real leader right now on the journey to net zero. There's so much to talk about here, but uh, yeah. Yeah. just tell us a little bit about the International Energy Agency, what it's doing and how it's trying to position itself as a player in this net zero journey at the international level. And while you're at it, maybe you can yeah. tell the listeners a little bit about what bioenergy is. I think not everyone really truly understands what it is to say bioenergy. Yeah. Let me start. I'll start with IEA and then we can get into like how bioenergy fits into that and what the definition is. I mean, the IEA, so this is a group of about 300 people looking internationally. And the way I look at it, we're all trying to figure out this question. How do we provide secure, sustainable energy for everyone in the world? I mean, that's the kind of driving mission for the organization. It's got 30 member countries, and so they help set the mandate for the organization. And it looks at everything, right? It's looking at renewable energy, it looks at oil, it looks at gas, it looks at coal, energy efficiency, and it participates in discussions at a number of different levels. So the IA will be at COP, it was at COP26, presenting information. We'll get down to working on specific countries. So for both India and China, we just released two reports on energy transition pathways for both of those countries. So how do you actually get to a a net zero pathway at that level. Some of the big flagship reports, I'll start with our departments since I'm working there, but looking at the market for renewable energy around the world. So what's happening in just about every country, you know, total amount of solar that's being built, what are the policies in place? What are the prices that we're seeing in those countries? And really trying to bring, you know, what's what's happened, what have we learned from implementing in some countries and helping to share that around the world to help accelerate a transition. Now, you know, where we are today from the, the history and how the organization's positioning itself, I mean, the, the IA was born out of the oil crisis in the 1970s. So its roots is, is energy security. This is before my time, but, you know, history lesson for myself that I had to read up on to remind myself. Large price spikes. You know, a lot of the countries are using oil around the world, wanting to avoid a repeat of that. And so came together to better understand the energy context around the world, the technologies that are at play, the types of policies that they could use to avoid these shocks. And then over time, that mission has started to grow to beyond oil, to include natural gas, 
to include electricity, and to today where we're really looking at how do we accelerate this transition to clean energy and how do, how do we move quicker towards a net zero goal. So that's really been the, you know, the change of, of the IA and led by the member governments, right? So it reflects those changes within countries around the world because they're setting the mandate for the, for the organization. So, Jeremy, is it fair to say that the organization started about controlling and managing price uh, of energy or understanding it at least, and now its mandate is going to also think about how to decarbonize the energy system around the world? Yeah, I think that's fair. We're trying to avoid those price shocks that, that happened in the 70s. One of the things that I love about the A, but I think one of the things they've also been criticized for are their scenarios of the energy future. And in some scenarios, they're uh, amazing forecasts based on where we go today and if we do nothing, what it looks like. And some scenarios are backcasts. If we're at net zero 2050, what do we need to do to get there and backcast from there? Can you talk to me a little bit about specifically bioenergy, what it is? And under different scenarios, what's the range of energy that the world could actually be consuming from bioenergy under these different scenarios? So bioenergy, you know, umbrella term, there's lots of different pieces under it. You can think of things. One component is biofuels, liquid biofuels. So these are things like ethanol or biodiesel. We use these in Canada right now. About 7% of you know, gas content around, around Canada is coming from ethanol. Another stream of it are biogases, and you had uh, Tyler Bryant on on a previous episode looking at uh, renewable natural gas. This is coming from decomposing uh, organic wastes, and you can capture that and, and then use that for for energy. And then we have solid bioenergy. So these are these can be wastes and residues from forest practices. It can be from agriculture, some of the pieces they have left over from agriculture. So it's all those all those components, things that are biological <laughs> at its base that then you're using to produce energy. Now, in terms of the role in a net zero pathway, it plays a number of different roles. So on the transportation side, if you have just about any vehicle that runs on gasoline or diesel, you can start to blend in this biofuels which helps to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. And the thing that's most useful about it is that you can use it in existing vehicles. So your car today, if it's running on gas, you can increase that ethanol content to a certain point and help to reduce emissions from every car on the road. So that's one element. And then you can also use it on the natural gas side. You can also blend with natural gas. The same point, you can blend it into uh, natural gas that we're already using. So you don't have to make changes to you know, your gas stove or heating system in your home. And then the solid bioenergy is often used to make electricity. And that has a number of useful pieces, unlike, say, wind or solar that can run all the time, or you can choose when to turn it on or off. And that's a very useful thing to have as you start to increase the amount of wind or solar in your system. Now, this ends up playing a role around 20% or so of total energy use in the system by, by 2050. And from today, it's around a 70% increase. Okay, so it's, it's fairly, it's quite significant growth. And it plays a, a very important role in the, the energy transition because of those points I just said. It's compatible with existing infrastructure and it complements other renewable sources. There's one other thing that it has that's, that's quite useful is that you can also capture emissions when you combust bioproduct. And then you've got what we call net zero emissions. So you've actually, not only have you avoided emissions, you actually have negative. You're actually pulling emissions out of the atmosphere, which can make up for some oil or gas or coal that may be still used. It's really hard to uh, remove in a net zero pathway. 
Yeah, so that's great. I, I mean, I think the one point to clarify, since not everyone who's listening uh, has a chemistry or an engineering background, why are biofuels lower carbon than their alternatives if they are these transition fuels in sort of existing infrastructure? Right. So they're produced from a bio base. So it might be something like a lot of biofuels produced from sugar, or they're produced from uh, corn, or there's also a lot of production from waste, like waste uh, oils. If you get fries at a restaurant, that oil is often collected, and you can use that to produce fuels. When you then burn that, when you combust it in your, your vehicle, emissions from the tailpipe is then getting reabsorbed in whatever plant that came from originally as it regrows. And so that's why you end up with these lower emissions. And it really depends on how you produce the fuels. There's cleaner ones and there's ones that aren't as clean. But if you're using waste in a modern facility, you're getting down to about 80% lower than you know, a gasoline or diesel alternative. And if you're trying to then capture those emissions, you can actually then go down into negative, right? So you're actually, not only are you at zero, you're you're, you're accounting, you're producing emissions beyond zero. I think there's a lot of misunderstanding or mistrust around the accounting on some of these things. So as an example, I know there are a number of advocacy groups that have become very outspoken about the, the kind of false promise of bioenergy as a, a negative emission or reduced emissions pathway. Can you speak to that at all, Chairman? Yeah, it's a lot of different issues associated with bioenergy as you've to like, what is the accounting side of it? I mean, there's food versus fuel debate, which comes up a lot. So the way we look at it, I mean, this is, you know, IA perspective on this. If we're going towards a net zero pathway for bioenergy to play a role, it has to be sustainable, right? And how we define that is it can't be competing in a serious way for, for land use, and it can't be competing with our food supply systems, right? So you can be exchanging food for, for fuel. So what that lends itself to is you end up using a lot more waste to produce these fuels than what a lot of it's produced from today, which is a lot more from agricultural products. So by 2050, you know, the vast majority of those fuels are coming from waste, from residues, from forestry operations, from agricultural residues. That's how that issue is kind of dealt with over time. You can really move to these, these types of, uh, of resources so you avoid those, those impacts. You know, one of the rules, I guess, of the IEA increasingly has been around accountability on the kind of net zero pathway, right? And so looking at, at these two reports that the IEA has released recently with, with you as one of the lead authors, what I see is that we're off track, that we're, we're not on pace to the 70% growth in the um, production of bioenergy that is flagged there. And it, it sounds like that's not just a consequence of needing to do more, but also of needing to source more and do it in a different way. What do we need to do to get on track? This is ultimately a policy question, right? Like what's the one piece of it, at least, is what can governments do to create the space for this? And Canada is a good example. That's putting in clean fuel standard, which says for uh, fuel supply across the country that, that we need to reduce the emissions intensity of that fuel over time. And that kind of policy helps drive these types of investments. We've seen something like that in California as well. It uh, provides a signal to invest in new facilities so that you're helping to reduce the greenhouse gas emissions associated with transportation. So that's kind of one key area. It's, it's the policy. Other countries are doing different things. Some will do mandates, like, a, like in India is, is putting in a very strong ethanol mandate that requiring 20% by 2025. So you can go that kind of route. Europe as well is doing something like a clean fuel standard. They've also put strong sustainability bounds on the types of fuels that can participate, right? So not only do they have to reduce greenhouse gas emissions, but we want to avoid things like deforestation, biodiversity impacts, and those types of things. So that kind of combo of 
setting a target and then also putting some bounds on the types of fuels that are allowed. So that's kind of a high level piece. Like you're increasing demand and making sure it's coming from a good source. On the other end, you also need some support to actually build out these plants, right? They're not all, not all of the technologies are, are commercial. And so there's a lot of space as well to help develop new technologies that can use those wastes. And you can look to the example with uh, Tyler in, in British Columbia as a good example of requiring a certain amount of renewable natural gas and the natural gas network, and then allowing someone like a Fortis to figure out how to develop that pathway and make sure that as a business, they're whole in providing that solution. Yeah, I think that's a critically important point, though, Jeremy, because some of these projects on their own are not economic. And in some cases, they're even economic, but don't hit the internal hurdle rate of a company. But when you put them in the portfolio of projects in that company, that company is hitting its overall IRR, its promise to its shareholders. Mm -hmm. So there is, I think, a role for government and and large companies, especially energy companies, to work together on this, to co-fund these things uh, in the early stages right now. And I think one point that you touched on that I thought was fascinating that kind of almost slips my mind every time I think about bioenergy is that the materials that go into bioenergy will have emissions on their own. And we have to make a choice if we want perfect to be the enemy of good or if we want these improvements in the near term and these transitions. So if you leave a series of bio waste out there, methanogenesis will happen and methane will come off and it will have emissions and actually very high emissions because it's methane as opposed to CO2. So that energy we use to make that into a fuel is is really, really minuscule compared to the amount of uh, emissions that would have on its own if you just leave it. So it's a tough topic because the alternative fate is, of these uh, materials is part of the calculation and isn't, at least for me, a natural place where my mind goes. It's sort of the starting point. Well, there's a couple of pieces there. I mean, there's one that, yeah, it already creates greenhouse gas emissions. So maybe you're helping to reduce emissions just by using these fuels. There's also other impacts, right? Like uh, some of the motivation in India for something called co-firing, so you take bio, you mix it with your, your coal power plant, is to reduce air quality impacts because they're collecting waste that are burnt in fields, and that's contributing to premature deaths for population because it's it's making the air so dirty. And so, you know, you're getting a climate benefit, but really the motivation is to make sure that you're improving air quality for millions of people. And then it adds another benefit that you're also providing some revenue to, to farmers, an additional revenue stream that they wouldn't have. So I think that you know, when we're talking about kind of the climate focus of this, there's a lot of other co-benefits. Like sometimes these projects happen because they're cleaning up a waste problem, they're cleaning up the air, they're providing employment. There's other rationales to do it than just greenhouse gas emissions. I guess the uh, co-benefits are really important, but also there's the sort of unintended consequences. I mean, I think, you know, going back to a previous life, Jeremy, study that I think we were both involved in really kind of unpacked the challenge around collecting a lot of the streams, feedstock that you would need to either run a co-firing scheme or or do other kinds of bioenergy, because ultimately it takes energy to go out and collect this distributed resource and yeah. bring it back to uh, an endpoint. And so that's in large measure why, you know, the primary kind of bioenergy plants today are being fueled with corn or, you know, having direct sourcing of wood pellets. So are we kind of overselling what we can actually achieve in a kind of carbon neutral or carbon negative way through bioenergy? So for these things, I lean on our net zero analysis, right? Because that's an assessment of looking globally, what are all the different options that are available to us? What are the price points on those? What's the technology pathway 
you know, around the world and at a country level. And when you try to bring all of those pieces together, there's more than enough supply, right? Like supply isn't the issue for those, for these wastes and residues that we might want to draw on. It's more about creating the pathway and incentive to actually start to, to use them, right? And again, this comes back to really a policy question. So if in California, you've put this greenhouse gas target on and you're starting to see a lot more wastes and residues kind of used in that system because it performs better and it gets more value. You pay more for it to be used. So that puts an incentive to, you know, for companies to go seek out those sources. The system today is not the system of tomorrow. The potential is there, but it depends on, you know, the actions that we take in order to help create that future. I guess as a, a follow-on, a lot of my work these days is with entrepreneurs where are the most promising areas? If you were, you know, going out and starting a business today, what do you see as the the top two or three segments in the uh, fuels category that you see the greatest promise from a bioenergy perspective? Right. I mean, there's different pieces. I mean, on the transportation side, I mean, renewable diesel is is growing very quickly. I mean, for those listeners who aren't into this biofuel space, <laughs> renewable diesel is something that you can blend with diesel at very high levels, right? And so we're seeing a lot of growth in that area, in part because you can blend it quite high, so you don't have the, the same kind of technical limitations in an engine. You can also produce the fuel from a variety of different waste feedstocks. Well, that's all jargony, but things like used cooking oil, you can turn that into, into fuel and it's uh, at a very low greenhouse gas level. Another area that's growing a lot is sustainable aviation fuel. Uh, there's a lot of interest in that space. And that's, you know, a part of, you know, the airline industry looking at options for, well, how do we reduce emissions, right? And you've got these cool ideas like electric planes and hydrogen planes. Those are going to take some time. At the other end, you can make planes more efficient, but you can only go so far with that. So these different fuel options are a big interest area. And we're also seeing a lot of growth there. So exploring that, how do you produce those fuels from these waste supplies is another very important area. And I'd say on the biogas side as well, there's a lot of interest in, in that area. How do you really scale this up to grow the amount of biogas that, that can be provided? And that's, you know, that problem part technical, but it's part also like, how do you value it, right? Like to produce a biogas, you're taking some waste, which has some value, right? So now you don't have to pay for treating that waste in some other way. Uh, you may be producing a fertilizer uh, along with it. Uh, you're also pro uh, producing energy, uh, but to make it work, you have to sort of get value from all of those different pieces to, to, to make the business case. So, so how, you know, figuring that out, I think is a, is a big potential as well. So I think those are some of the, the key areas. So, Something you can blend at high levels, sustainable aviation fuels, renewable natural gas. Yeah, I know we've gone deep in the nerd hole here, but I'm really, yeah. really um, interested in something that you keep saying that I, that may be a bit subtle, which is you, you haven't used the word waste more than once in this entire conversation. And when we start thinking about these things that someone would look at as a big pile of waste as a feedstock, suddenly the world becomes a very different place. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, the word feedstock, I think, actually matters a lot because... I did cut my teeth in the biofuels industry when I was 22 years old. I spent a couple of years sourcing waste wood for, for biofuels. And when I would go see it, I would see things that are the size of football fields or bigger, just piles of wood waste around Quebec, around northern Ontario and uh, in Pennsylvania. And I would see them and I would see feedstocks and the owners of these 
facilities would look at them and they'd see liabilities. They'd see nitrogen leaching into the water. They'd see methangenesis. They'd see all these issues. So it's quite interesting when you say, hey, I can make something out of that, how things change and uh, how you can bring a lot of different people to the table. So I've been really quietly chuffed by you keep saying uh, the word feedstock instead of wood waste or or bio waste. So I think uh, that's one of the things when I think about the circular economy becomes quite a obvious thing and we need to start at least creating um, economic bio value chains. And, you know, as we were talking about earlier, it's it's building out those channels or supply chains in a way that's economical, but also where the carbon math makes sense. That's in part the challenge, but that also is, I guess, the local employment opportunity that you were describing as one of the co-benefits. One of the areas that I keep thinking about is, and it's fair to say, I think my interpretation, and maybe it's not a fair one of, of the IPCC analysis around bioenergy with carbon capture and storage is that it was sort of a hand wave. It was like, okay, we know we're going to overshoot. And for us to kind of get down, we're going to need a large volume of negative tons. Direct air capture was kind of a science science vision or science fiction back when they were doing that analysis. And so the, the concept was, well, you know, bioenergy with CCS, that sounds right. We know how to do CCS. We already know a lot about co-firing and about bioenergy-based power generally and in large-scale waste energy facilities across Europe and so on. So why can't we do a lot of CCS on bioenergy plants and, and really drive down emissions cheaply and at large scale? But the reality is, I, I and I would need to check the numbers, I think there's only one BEX project currently under construction in the world right now with a lot of public subsidy in the UK. And so is, is BEX actually going to happen at any kind of scale? And how, how much does uh, IEA's kind of drive to net zero rely on, on a real big build out of, of BEX? I mean, BEX, so let's do BEX what it is. I mean, your capturing could be from combusting bioenergy at a plant, right? Is also capturing from a biofuels facility or something like that, or from a renewable natural gas facility. Some of the growth that we're seeing right now is just linked to that, linked to like an ethanol facility in the United States. There's a project right now to build a CO2 trunk line that would connect up uh, a bunch of biofuel facilities. So you're seeing some development on that side, right? Now, BEX in, in the net zero scenario starts to play a role further in the future. You can take this model as saying, well, you need something along there. And at the prices that you might reach, BEX still makes sense in that development pathway. And I'm forgetting the numbers right now. There's some for, you know, electricity generation combined with carbon capture and storage, and then there's the, the biofuels component. My memory is the biofuels component is the majority of that, around 60%. So it's it's less on the you know the electricity side and it's more on, on the biofuel plants because they when you're producing ethanol, you get a CO2 stream that you can capture. And some of that's being driven right now, again, California example, some of that's been driven by that because you get more value. If you produce a cleaner fuel, it's worth more. And so that drives the interest in, in some of those investments. So what you know, Canada's putting in a similar policy. Europe's going that route as well. I think once you start to put that value on making it cleaner, that actually starts to justify those investments. Yeah, thanks for that. I think, you know, the low carbon fuel standard in California or the clean fuel standard as it starts to get rolled out in Canada would would add somewhere between $200 and $300 per ton to the value of each emission. And that starts to matter when you get to large capital expenditures. Dan, circular economy has been an area of particular focus for you. Do you have anything around that circular bioeconomy piece that you'd want to throw at our friend Jeremy here as part of our uh, peppering our friend and special guest? I don't have a question locked and loaded, more of an observation, right? Which is that, you know, as we said in the previous podcast, you don't make a daisy out of a daisy. You make a daisy out of 
sunlight, out of air, and a tiny bit of genetic material from a plant that came before it, and nutrients in the soil. So uh, I think it's important when we think about the bioeconomy, in, in my view, is to look at this as, can we make energy out of something better? And it's a bit complicated because there's the carbon cycle, which is a cycle that exists in nature that plants suck up carbon, but there is no methane cycle. That is that when you put methane out into the world, especially when you let uh, bio materials just rot, it goes into the world and there is nothing that sucks it up. So not so much a question, but an observation. I think the bioeconomy matters so much because it, it circulates the carbon and uh, allows us to avoid the methane, which is, of course, 20 plus times more uh, carbon intensive than the equivalent amount of CO2. So uh, to me, you know, this is one of those cases where we have to allow better and we have to allow good to exist and not just shoot for perfect all the time. Uh, I see the bioeconomy as such an important part of the energy transition over the next decade, maybe even two, but, you know, may not be a significant contributor to energy sources in 50 years from now. And we have to allow good to be in this world without just saying, well, good is not perfect. So uh, that's more of an observation than a question. Jeremy, how would you react to that? And you certainly see this amongst a lot of the advocacy community, the need to really get it right, to have the carbon credits or the carbon math work in a very strong and definitive way. What do you think? Do we need to kind of have some tolerance for not getting it right as we start to build out these different pathways? There's so many different scenarios on achieving net zero. They're probably all wrong because this is such a complicated discussion, but all of them include you know, bioenergy in some aspect of it. So, you know, I see it as a, it, it's kind of a key part of it. And if it's not, then what are you putting in its place? And it may be more expensive. I don't know. When I look at this problem, it's, I think we have to be careful with, really careful with which supplies we use. We're aiming to reduce emissions, but we also want to make sure we're getting all these other benefits out of it. And I think lean on uh, some of the work that's been done in Europe, some of the work that's been done in California on really identifying which sources do we think are the lowest impact that get us that greenhouse gas benefit? And then make sure that we're learning from those and applying it in other parts of the world. Okay, well, let's go up a level. One of the really interesting things that the IEA does, of course, is benchmarking of how different countries are approaching the uh, path to net zero in addition to these different technology buckets. Uh, and of course, the IEA released a report kind of benchmarking Canada's progress. I know you weren't the lead author on that one, but just a reviewer. But I wonder, you know, as a dislocated Canadian hanging out at this crossroads of like-minded thinkers from around the world, all working together to try and sketch in a very compelling way, these different pathways, how's Canada doing? And what do we need to be doing more of? Right. I mean, looking at that report, I mean, it's about 250 pages. <laughs> so he wants the deep dive on the review of Canada. <laughs> you know, but I think I think some of the points that came out of it are kind of similar to some of the discussions in Canada, right? I mean, I think we've put in a lot of the right policy signals and a lot of the right targets are, are there. So you have a lot of the pieces that are necessary to kind of move on the net zero pathway. There's going to be critiques that they're not strong enough or that we need more. And that's probably do need more. A lot of the pieces are in place. Canada also has incredible potential, right? I mean, we've got uh, incredibly clean electricity system compared to the world and an ability to increase that. Uh, and we know a lot of the pathways in this year, it's more electricity use, whether it's for vehicles or our homes. So that clean electricity uh, capacity is, is a you know, a huge competitive advantage for Canada. And I think that came through in the report as well. 
Um, and we also have other supplies. We've been talking about bioenergy. Canada has a huge potential in that space. But you look at hydrogen as well. Canada has a lot of potential. So I think we have a lot of the options necessary to go on that pathway. The other piece that the report pointed out, though, is that there's you know there's challenges as well. I mean, oil and gas sector, the growth, the the size of that sector, and you know, in, in one of the points was that more work needs to be done to reduce emissions in line with a 2030 or 2050 target. You know this, it's challenging in Canada to kind of square that different regions have different strengths and and, uh, it can be more difficult than other regions to reduce emissions. So there's that kind of challenge that that faces Canada. And it's a bit unique in more advanced economies around the world because we are a major exporter. That's one challenge. There's two other pieces just on coordinating between the different provinces. That's also unique. At least in my work here, people commented all the time. They want to just report on federal government policies. And you're like, no, you got to look at the provincial. They're like, why? Why don't you just do it federally? Um, so this coordination between the provinces for energy infrastructure and policies so that you're kind of moving in step is another challenge. And then also making sure you're making the right investments so that we actually have the energy supply to meet that, that net zero future. Um, we're seeing around the world right now. Oil and gas investments are actually somewhat aligned with our our net zero pathway today, Uh, but the clean energy investments are way below where we need to be today, let alone, you know, in 10 years from now. And so, you know, getting the investments in electricity infrastructure, clean fuel facilities, all of these types of things needs to actually expand more quickly over time to to set us up for that pathway. So those are some of the pieces I, I took away, you know, right policy signals, lots of potential and some unique challenges, and then a few other ones that are basically being faced by just about every country in the world that's that's trying to achieve a, some sort of net zero pathway. Let's talk about those cross-cutting challenges that every country faces. And yeah. you don't talk about the, the challenges of a federal system. Uh, if we have right. Another nerd hole. <laughs> Another nerd hole. But, you know, IEA is very much, uh, you know, in, in many ways, a geopolitical organization too. And when you think about it, you kind of landed in Europe right in the middle of what was soon to become a an energy crisis in part driven by geopolitics. Maintaining political consensus on a pathway or, or set of pathways to net zero in a country is pretty challenging. You know, you're, you're kind of moving subsidies from one industrial sector that have high return into other industrial sectors or energy production sectors that may or may not have similar uh, return or create jobs in the same regions as where you're losing jobs as part of that transition. What are you learning or what are you seeing, I guess, in terms of how countries are managing those tensions successfully? Yeah, speaking to the tensions of you know those industries that may have a more difficult time transitioning than, than others and where some of the, the benefits are. Regional politics, too. You know, if you pull money out of the oil and gas sector, which is concentrated in a few kind of geographic regions, it's creative destruction. But uh, those who are being transitioned don't necessarily feel good about it. And it can wreak havoc on on the politics of a country. I'm not spending as much time looking at each individual country and the, the, the politics in the country. But I'll say some trends, I guess, that come out from the work around the world. And one is this, you know, this co-benefits discussion is everywhere. Right. So climate is one driver of these things. And for some countries, that may be a primary reason to do things. For other countries, it's an addition to other objectives they, they want to achieve, right? And I think, but I think regardless of that, whether it's you know, climates first or air qualities first or energy provisions first, you always need to link it to what are some of the job and employment benefits. 
How are you making sure that that these benefits are shared through throughout the country? You know, an awareness that you're kind of competing with other parts in the world for investment in these different sectors. So, yeah, you know, it, it's uh, sometimes it's cost, but other times you're trying to lure in production so that you're getting more of the benefits from growing more solar or or wind or or more bioenergy, whatever it is. We want to make sure some of those benefits stay in the country itself. Another piece that's increasing quite a bit is just you know. How do you look at energy security when looking at these new energy supplies? So if you're looking at solar or wind or, or bioenergy uh, and your energy systems moving to that, what does energy security mean for these things? Like we've had a lot of experience with oil and natural gas, looking at well, if prices go up, how do we react to that? Um, and there's been a lot of you know, 40, 50 years of discussion about that. But now we're seeing, well, when we have you know, a lot of solar, a lot of wind, uh, or you're relying more on batteries, like where are those minerals coming from? How do you make sure you've got a secure supply for your for your own country or that the world as a whole has a secure system so that this moving to this cleaner energy system is happening in a way that you can continue to provide reliable, affordable uh, energy for, for your citizens? So this topic area is shared across the world as well. So those are you know a few pieces that I think are shared challenges that a lot of different countries are facing. And, and recognizing, of course, that the OECD, so the, the club of kind of wealthy nations, is really the the community that that underwrites the IEA. And so their analysis in large measure is focused on the interests or needs of those clients, which include Canada. I'll just add one point on that. Like that, that's true. That's the core membership. Uh, but the IEA is quite focused now and we have, you know, associate countries. So these are countries that are involved. The IEA have different agreements with the IEA. So there's a huge amount of interest in India, China, uh, Indonesia, Brazil as because these are very significant countries, very large populations, uh, huge energy demand, and lots of growth happening. So while you know there's a lot of you know there'll be interest from from the direct membership, a lot of that membership is also interested in what's happening in these other parts of the world. Because if you're trying to achieve net zero, you can't do it with just the 30 members of the IEA. You need these other countries as well. Fascinating. What's something that you want to talk about that I haven't asked you? I mean, you know what? I'll take it up a level just on net zero. Because we've gone into some very like specific topic areas. But what I find, you know, this movement towards net zero is kind of a global target. I mean, that's just happened over the last few years. It's kind of amazing, right? You've got the majority, you've got what's what 80% of countries or 80% of the economy is now covered by a, a net zero target. The fact that we have, you know, that kind of general agreement around the world that we should aim for that. And you know, everyone has different definitions, they might have different years, but the fact that the world's going to come around that viewpoint is incredible. And I think that takes away some of this, at least part of the uncertainty associated with these investments, because we didn't have that before. There wasn't that kind of overall vision of that's what we're aiming for. That comes with the other part that targets are just that, they're just a target. And so there's a lot of work that that needs to go into, okay, so how do we actually move towards achieving those targets? You know, what are the government's policies that we'll put in place to achieve them? How do we make sure those investments actually happen? But that's a lot more conversation is in that space as opposed to what are we aiming for? And that's um, a big change in the conversation. Yeah, I'm constantly reminded that the world has dramatically changed from you know just a few years ago when a lot of this was aspirational at best to right. mainstream conversation. And in the other podcast I host, I'm having startups come in and pitch to venture capitalists and what was science fiction is now science fact. So let me uh, maybe take it up a level. I mean, one of the interesting things, of course, about the IA as well is this process 
whereby they produce these reports. And I wonder if you can comment on that and how that process of both deep analytical work, as well as the multiple review cycle and the management of interests of the different member countries plays out. Yeah, I mean, I'll have insight to some pieces of this um, and not all of it. I mean, generally, at, you know, at a high level, the high level mandates set by those member countries, right? So that'll give you the, the high level, you know, where energy security is critical. This year, we're going to focus on how that applies to critical minerals or what the net zero transition could look like. So you'll have that kind of high level direction. Then within the organization, we're then figuring out, well, how do you contribute to that? What, what different pieces of material might you produce to contribute to that work? And there's any number of different agreements and you know, structure around how that might, we might have made a commitment to India that we're working on this type of area. So that might inform it, right? So there's lots of different things that will then influence what type of project you actually work on. Having said that, there's a lot of standard pieces, right? The World Energy Outlook comes out every year. We do our report on renewable markets every year. There's monthly oil reports, natural gas reports. So there's a lot of standing items that are always reported, but what you might talk about in those reports will change. You know, from that point, once you have your project idea, you're you're producing it, you're doing the, the research, um, and it's just a fantastic group of people, right? You're working with really sophisticated people that know their know their stuff, and we have great access to, to information around the world to help us with our thinking. And then usually a report will go into you know some sort of external review. So you've got hundreds of people uh, commenting on it from around the world and providing their perspective, maybe at a country level or from an expert level, and then take those comments try to address them to your best ability. And then you're releasing a report and then there's, you know, lots of other organization, lots of different pieces around that. You know, you've got the press release, you've got summary items, you've got your tweets, all of these different pieces. And then maybe there's a follow-up workshop or, you know, there's tons of different ways you might uh, engage after with that report. So, I mean, that's the high level <laughs> view of how this may go. And there's hundreds of different pathways to, uh, to producing, well, maybe 150, since we've got something like 150 <laughs> products coming out this year. That's amazing. Well, and these reports, because of the stage that the IA holds and the position it plays in the international discourse, that these reports matter uh, and become kind of benchmarks against which investors compare their assessments and against which governments uh, can be can be held accountable or can shape policies. So they're they're very influential. You mentioned critical minerals, you mentioned renewables. What's one, you know, beyond those, are there, are there other reports that you think coming that are going to be specifically relevant to Canada and its net zero journey? We're just getting direction for this year. So I actually don't even have the different reports and analyses that are coming out. I mean, I always look for our renewable energy uh, report that looks at markets around the world. We always do a Canada piece. Uh, and that's useful to see how Canada sits in terms of investment. Well, on investment, but like total capacity and, and stuff like that. Yeah, but I don't have other other pieces at this point. I mean, there's going to be a lot more discussion on net zero pathways and how you get there, the types of policies that help, the types of technologies to get there, like you know, like Abex, and then um, this question of energy security and and critical minerals. I mean, we're just starting that conversation, so there'll be areas you know related to these these topic areas, but I don't even have what specifically we're going to be working on. Well, I think you can't avoid the the question of energy security if you're sitting in Europe watching natural gas and energy prices go up. So fun to see you, Jeremy, and thank you. You're doing really great work. 
This has been a really educational discussion for me. I've learned a ton and I want to thank you for coming on and sharing your expertise with us and look to get you back on at some point in the next year or so to give us an update. Yeah, that sounds good. Well, I'm Jason Switzer, your host. It's been really terrific to have Jeremy Moorhouse, dislocated Canadian expat and energy expert in the bioenergy space at the IA with us today. Thanks, Jeremy. Thanks very much, Jay.